I'm your host, Grayson Brolty. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Alistair McIntosh, CTO of Lilium, who will tell us the story of the Lilium Jet and the latest on their certification process. We hope you enjoy this episode. Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Grayson. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you here because eVTOLs are the future of transportation. They're going to have a massive positive impact on transportation. They're going to allow individuals to, to move around the region and eventually move around the world. I'm really curious, Alistair, to kick things off. How is Lilium approaching the eVTOL market? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting subject. I think one of the things that we started off is really the, the environmental issue. Now, I think, um, you know, decarbonization, I'd say the case for decarbonization has been clearly made, so that there's no need to go through there. But aviation in particular um, generates about 2.5% CO2 emissions to the, to the annual total. So aviation is a big player. And clearly, there's a lot going on there. So that, that's one aspect. The other aspect is then about moving around the planet. A lot of our infrastructure today, it's congested. If it's a car, whether it's on the, on the rail, even in the air, um, it's getting really difficult in some parts of the world. So there's opportunities to be had to you know, optimise that. If you want to make changes to some of that infrastructure, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. Having a, a, an EV toll as, a, as an example where we can move quickly and cleanly um, actually navigates our way through some of those challenges. One other point I think is really interesting. In 2021, um, EASA, so our European Certification Authority, um, did a survey. Um, they took some, some, some reading of the public and actually there was an 83% positive response about uh, the opportunities to, to at that point, they were, they were really focusing on urban air mobility, but I think it, it goes across the wider spectrum here. So the real kind of the positives there, there's still kind of residual concerns, actually, surprisingly, about things like wildlife, but also safety is really key. You know, you've got to come up with a product that's safe. So that, that's the kind of things that we've really focused on, and that's where we've, we've put our efforts in to bring forward our, our um, electrical vertical takeoff and landing jet. It's interesting. I had lunch with a friend of mine yesterday who's a very large real estate investor, and he's from the Dallas metro region. And we were talking about Dallas, and he lives here in Florida now. And he goes, every time I go back, I don't like it. There's traffic. And he goes, I don't know how much longer the real estate market from the commercial standpoint or Dallas can grow because the traffic is making it unlivable. Because in order to put more roads, you have to go through permitting. You have to add lanes. It's very costly and very expensive. And, and Dallas, Fort Worth, the DF. W region is very spread out. You have Frisco in the, in, in the north, Highland Park in the south. Is that a solution where Lilium could potentially fit in as these urban environments grow and the traffic becomes horrendous? Or even look at Los Angeles, for example, from downtown to Santa Monica. Is that an example of, of where the solution could potentially fit in? I mean, clearly, when there's, in, there's existing infrastructure, that's your, kind of your starting point. Um, you can really take that as a multiplier. I think the thing that Lilium, we've differentiated ourselves a little bit from some of the other guys in the, in the, in the area. Um, we don't see ourselves as an air taxi. We're, we're not really big on the urban aspect. Um, we can certainly do it with the product we've got, but what we're really interested in actually is, is the regional aspect. So going further, um, you know, going that sort of about, by regional, we'd sort of say 175 kilometers, that kind of range. So that's um, what, 100, 100, 105 miles. That, that's kind of what we're targeting. And also the point being, a bigger cabin and so we're really looking to have um, we can carry six passengers so plus a pilot it's a seven seater taking more people further actually it's a bigger impact so there's a win-win there particularly when you think about the um, not just the time savings but also the the, the impact on the uh, on the environment 
to me, you open up the tourism economy. If you look at Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, that's about roughly 90, I think 96, 97 miles. That seems like that's a potential route infrastructure on, on both ends of the spectrum. Why did Lilia make the decision to focus on regional air mobility instead of urban air mobility? I think it's all about maximizing the impact that you can have. There is, I think, some still, you know, you've got to ask yourself if you've got the option of taking your car and going from A to B or taking a, an aircraft over a shorter distance, if it's not cheap and affordable and readily accessible, you're going to take your easy option, you're going to jump in your car. We actually see the regional aspect being something that, that actually gives people more leverage. They can go further, they can do it relatively quickly, um, and they can do it cheaply if, if, you know, when we get to that point of mature costing. So we see that as a, as a, as a real good thing. Also, as you look around the planet, you know, the connecting of, of uh, not just city to city, but there's certain areas where people would love to connect, but it's just not so easy. So some, some island regions, for example, also, yeah, tourism, as you say, there's certain areas, um, if, if I look maybe a bit more parochially in, in, in Europe, you know, the south of France, uh, in Spain, for example, Italy, there's places where it's really suited to be connected around London, how to get to Oxford, you know, there's, there's people who don't want to live in a city, want readily access and can very quickly hop over without sitting in motorways. And equally then, America, uh, a lot of... Uh, for want of a better expression, a kind of target-rich environment. Um, there's a lot to go at. We certainly see Florida is a great area. We see fin- you know, f- fantastic networking that can be had there. Things just connect together. And, and particularly getting around Florida is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. I, I use the, uh, the term, it's a pain in the tookie. <laughs> it's really, truly a, a, a pain in the tookie to get around. And I said to your, your team members, I said, you, gotta, I, you, you have a partnership with NetJets, and congratulations on that. Have NetJets operate a service from Florida to the Bahamas. It's, it, that's, it fits within your where you're going. I'm really curious, what competitive advantages does Lilium have from a technical perspective? Because you're not focused on the urban, you're focused on the regional. You have a really interesting design. What technical advantages do you have wrapped in that beautiful design? So the um, yeah the design is as you say quite beautiful. It's, it is is an outlier from the from the other guys. One of the things that everybody always spots very quickly is our ducted electric fans, our distributed propulsion, so our vector thrust. We don't have open propellers, so there's no open rotors here, and this is part of our overall strategy. One of the things that we really focused on from day one was noise, and um, we also focused on scalability, simplicity, um, and also safety. But specifically then on the propulsion system. Having a ducted fan actually allows you to contain the noise within the duct. You can you can also tune the frequencies. So as you as you do your fan design, you know, that's your part that rotates. Um, how it interacts with the airflow coming in, how it react interacts with the the airflow as it goes to the static components. You can actually tune that um, through good design, and that can get you a really low noise footprint. And that that's really, as I say, been the corner, the keystone. And if you if you keep your fan diameter down. Um, and, and spread out the distribution. Hence the reason we have 30 engines in total. Um, actually brings the noise signature right down. Then there's other um, added advantages, having a, a ducted fan, and the unlikely event that you were to have a fan blade release, a failure, for example, the duct will contain the, the, the blade. Um, so it's a really strong thing from a from a safety perspective. On a propeller, um, you know, once it goes, it goes, and and it's, it's got a high likelihood of, of creating damage to the to the actual aircraft. Um, so there's aspects there. Also, there's other considerations. If you want to use existing infrastructure, 15 meters, 45 feet is your kind of helipad size standard. So you've got to fit your aircraft onto there. 
Now, we've packaged our aircraft with a, the, got two main rear wings and we've got two smaller wings at the front, so two, two canards, as we refer to them. That package, actually, the wingspan sits nicely on an existing helipad as its length as well. So we're, we're talking about a, a wingspan then of about uh, 14 metres. So it all fits very comfortable. If you then want to, let's say, increase the size of your aircraft and take off more, more mass, lift more mass, when you've got open propellers, one of the problems you have there is you can only do one of two things. You either spin your propellers faster to get that higher lift energy, the higher thrust that you need. That creates more noise. The other option is that you grow the size of your propellers, um, either put more in or grow them. All of a sudden, very quickly, you run out of space on that existing helipad. So you're kind of locked into a design. One of the you know the considerations then, as I say, that's the scalability aspect. We can play with our technology better tunes on packaging our overall aircraft um, into different shapes, which we're looking at a family plan here. We're not we're coming to market, as I say, with a with a six-seater, but actually we, we've got opportunity here to grow that and, and repackage that aircraft and make things happen a little bit differently. So that that I think is a, is a real advantage for us. Another issue that's really interesting is around about then safety. So the number of engines that we have, more tolerant to failures, quite simply. And that's one of the aspects when we get into regulations, for example, IASA drive us to quite a high standard of safety in, in Europe. So that's, the, that's a real important feature for us. And, and finally, it's just simplicity. The reason why the design looks so good, I think, is because it's not covered in other flaps. There's no vertical thin, you know, it's just really simple. It's really nice. Also, we don't have uh, heavy hydraulic systems driving flaps. It's all done electrically. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's actually a very, very nice package. And it is eye-catching, you know. Again, the comments that we have when people actually see our aircraft live um, and also for, from future current and, and, and future potential customers, people are really taken back by, by, the, by the sheer, um, yeah, uh, attractive packaging. From a technical perspective, how does the thrust system work? I, I've watched your videos on YouTube. I find it fascinating. You take off like a helicopter, and then you fly like a plane. I said, okay, George Jetson invented this. So obviously you're not George Jetson, but from a technical perspective, how does this work? Yeah, I was just, uh, I can kind of remember George Jetson. I'm not, I'm not that, uh, that old. Well, I am really, but hey. It's, uh, yeah, so when you're um, about to take off, the, the engines are in the vertical position. Um, they then generate the, the thrust. So that gives you this ability to have a deadlift of the aircraft. So as you get airborne, the engines then, if you want to go forward, you'll then uh, rotate the engines. They'll automatically move through 90 degrees to go from the vertical to the horizontal position. And as you're doing that, because it is vectored thrust, the aircraft will move forward. And as you gain more forward speed, what then happens is the, is the wings then actually contribute to the, to the lift that actually then offloads the engine. So the engines are there at that point in time, they're just pushing the aircraft across. But the, the aircraft is then, um, as I say, airborne. And the interesting piece is that as you go further forward, power, the energy demand uh, on the engines actually, actually reduces significantly. So when you're in cruise, you're only drawing about 10% of the, the power that you did um, for the takeoff. So there's a real advantage there. And we spend then a lot of our, we, we yeah, use a lot of our energy at that phase for 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 the cruise leg and that that's normally about roughly i'd say 50 percent of the of the the battery and the energy life that we have over a over a one hour say max one hour flight and then clearly you reverse the process as you come as you come into land in a, in a vertical case and that transition is is what we call that, that that move from vertical to horizontal is what we call transition 
And that's always the tricky bit about eVTOLs. It's been something historically that's been quite difficult to master. But actually, with the tools and the methods that we have today, we're, we're making you know, strides through this. And we've demonstrated the technology that we have, have work, uh, works, and it works in a safe and controlled manner, which I think is, again, really, really important for us. What type of training does a potential Lilium pilot have to go through? Do they have to go through a whole new training course, a whole new regiment? What does that look like? The beauty of the aircraft, if you're sitting in the cockpit, and I'm, I have to, a bit of a disclaimer here, I'm not a pilot. So, however, the first time I went in our simulator, I was really amazed how easy the aircraft is to fly. The flight control computer takes care of everything. So, you know, if you want to go up, if you want to go forward, it's very simple. You don't have to worry about what all the 30 of the engines are doing. The, the flight control computer takes care of that. So the pilots, from a pilot perspective, people can either be fixed wing, traditional sort of fixed wing or rotorcraft, you know, helicopters. They adapt very, very quickly. So training programs, very, very simple, very short. And it's an important part, really, about how we do that because, as we all know, the number of pilots in the, in the world is a bit of a scarce commodity and there's, there's more to be done there. And indeed, we've, we've actually... Um, uh, partnered with uh, Lufthansa Technical to, to help train pilots going forward. And we have uh, Flight Safety International, so FSI, they are actually producing some uh, additional simulators for us. So we, we'll have that capacity to both get pilots and to train with, with the infrastructure that that we will put in place, um, both with ourselves and with future future airlines going forward as well. I have to give you a lot of credit because you're building the infrastructure for a business to scale and a business to commercialize. At the same time, you're going through certification. Currently, Lilium's on track for EASA type certification, Lilium Jet, in late 2025. Overall, what goes into the type certification process and what does it look like? We've been yeah we've been working with a European regulator being being based in Europe you know you, you start with your your home base so IASA is our is our regulator here we've been engaged with IASA since 2017 IASA have taken a really interesting approach traditionally and what's in the in the world there today is is a number of of rule books as it were depending on what your what your product is light aircraft um, you're in what's referred to as CS 27 S or 23. Bigger aircraft, heavier aircraft, CS25. Then, then you're into rotorcraft. It's into 27, and then heavy aircraft, uh, heavy helicopters, 29. So, so these regulations already exist. However, Yazda took a different approach because this is a whole new segment that's opening up. They've sort of said, well, this is a bit special. It's a bit different. It's, it's electric powered. It could be hybrid. You know, so it could be a combination of a pure electric and maybe a gas turbine or, or something. But they took a different approach and they've set out what they call SC veto, so special condition vertical takeoff and landing. And they've come up with a suite of regulations which pull on those other books. You know, they pull on the, the part 23 through to the 27, um, 29. They've pulled that together and taken things out that are pertinent to the eVTOL world. And the, the great part for us is we've we've partnered and worked really well with them. We've helped and influenced that activity, um, you know, to the better for everybody. Yaza as well, the kind of working relationship we have with them it is a, very much a kind of partnership. They're learning, we're learning. So building this new regulation suite has, has been interesting for both parties and we've come a long, long way. So where are we now? Um, yeah, we're, as you, as you, as you say, uh, late 2025 is, is our target for, for certification. Um, we've got our certification basis. We know what the regulations are. Um, we've we've actually had that in place since uh, late 2020. Now we're going through um, demonstrating our means of compliance or agreeing our means of compliance. So how will we show that we will meet the regulations? 
building and agreeing our certification plans. And, and that's the detail that we're in at this stage. We're actually bringing our first aircraft that will go into flight test. That, the hardware is actually making its way to the factory. So we'll start seeing some of the bigger significant parts like the fuselage at the back end of this year, which means we're going to start building our first aircraft for the flight test program for certification um, into next year. We'll take that through all the ground testing, get our, our safety of flight, our permit to fly, and we'll kick off um, with a manned um, flight testing programme at the end of next year. And again, that's all done very much with close collaboration with the IASA as we work through the details there. So I, I would say not only we're we in a really good way, um, we're certainly leading uh, with the IASA um, in the European sphere. That's, 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 that's for sure. You're not cutting corners. I want to emphasize that you're not cutting corners. You're working with the regulators to ensure the highest level of safety. Let's jump across the pond because here in America, we have the FAA and you're currently working on FAA certification as well. How's that going? So the FAA have taken a different approach. With 2317B, they will now um, drive towards uh, taking each individual product and assessing what the requirements actually are. But interestingly, the level of safety that they're setting the bar at is 10 to the minus 7 or 10 to the minus 8, so slightly less than what he has. It's not as demanding. The FAA have what they call a, a safety continuum. So depending on the complexity of your aircraft, how big it is, um, what is the public perception of, of level of safety required, um, they'll peg you at a certain level. They also then combine that with the operation, what's referred to at the moment as SFAR, so Special Federal Aviation Regulation. That's how the aircraft has to operate. So they, they would argue the combination of the 23, uh, 1317B and the SFAR gets you to the same level of safety that IASA mandates. So one's doing it, the IASA are doing it by design effectively, the, um, the FAA are doing it by a combination of design and operational limitation. Now, we, we, again, we're making really good progress with the FAA. We have our certification basis and we're, we're a little bit, deliberately a little bit behind to plan, uh, rather, IASA lead and then FAA follow. So that's the deliberate phasing that we have. And we just kind of work that through. So I, I think we're making good progress there as well. Um, we have regular meetings with both parties and, and three-way parties as well. So that, that's, a, that's a, I think, is a really good thing. The other interesting piece would be, you know, if I certify something in the FAA land, so in, in North America, um, that hasn't already had a, a previous certification with the ASA, um, that'll be quite challenging because I'm going to bring something in that's to a lower design standard and try and get it approved in, in the IASA land in Europe. You know, that's that's an interesting dynamic. Leland, we're in the fortunate position, of course, having already secured that within Europe. It's relatively straightforward then to say, hang on, we've designed this to a higher safety standard. So North America, hey, we're good, you know, and that, that's kind of where that's kind of how we how we see this playing out. And then obviously we have, we have Brexit. What happens to the airspace of the United Kingdom? Do you have to go through a whole another certification process or will one of those carry over? So similarly, it comes down to cross-validation. Um, so the agreements that um, the IASA have around the world and, and the CAA in the UK is, is one of those. The CAA have made a public statement. They are aligning themselves with the IASA. So they're, they're really looking towards IASA to provide guidance and help, I would say, um, on those rules. So they are going to come back to that safety standard. They're going to drive the need to be at the 10 to the minus, uh, 10 to the minus 9 safety 
probability to go into into uh, into the UK. And indeed, one of our customers, um, Evolari, is actually based in the UK, and, and there's other opportunities there as well. So, so I think we're well placed, and it's just again this cross validation and building upon the the bilateral agreement that, that the EASA has with the UK authority. Okay, I'm going down the rabbit hole, so you got to forgive me because you have customers in Saudi Arabia where they're building Neom. You have customers in in China. Do you have to go through, when you go to your new markets, do you have to go through the certification process? Or is there a, I don't want to call it a, a treaty agreement or some sort of, if you meet one standard and then, okay, if you meet, say you meet three, then you get a, let's say a passport and then you're allowed to go operate or do you have to go through this in every market that your customers have demand for your product? It's, it is like a treaty agreement. As you say, it's a, what's referred to as a bilateral. So EASA with different companies, uh, countries has a bilateral and some historical, you know, the relationship perhaps between the EU and, and other countries may be stronger. Some may be more stronger, leaning towards the FAA in, in America. Um, however, I mean, if I take examples of, of um, Brazil, is a good point case with Azul. We have orders with Azul. So ANAC are the, the Brazil regulator. And again, we're interacting. So we apply actually via EASA for cross-validation with ANAC. And then the relationship works between between Yaza and ANAC, and clearly we're, we're part of that. Um, so it's a very similar similar process. And um, the great part is to try and align as much as possible during your design phase to ensure that you only certify once effectively and you use your certification evidence to, to satisfy the requirements of the bilateral. Um, other ones, if you go further afield, China's another area. You know, we're, we're Hell Eastern, we, we, we recently uh, announced an, an agreement there. Um, so over on the greater Bay side of things, it's another one. And so the reaction, or rather the interaction between Yaza and the Chinese authorities, that's a, that's a really interesting piece. So we, we build on that, you know, we, we do the application and then we work it through um, in, in, in due course. You have the treaties, I'm going to use that term lightly, but then it allows you to scale, which becomes very, very interesting if you have a new customer, say, in Peru or a new customer in a different part of the, the world that allows you to scale. So we, 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 we did pretty good on certification. Let's fast forward. When the aircraft is certified, what's the go-to-market strategy? We've got a cabin that, that can really deliver um, a shuttle service for six people. But as we tried to market that, um, we were making good progress. But actually, some of the really interesting feedback we were getting was coming from business aviation and, and helicopter operators. You know, it was a little bit surprising, to be honest. But... Um, I guess the attractiveness of the aircraft, the, the, the cabin experience that we can offer is, is really unique. And that made us step back and think a little bit. And actually, so where we've positioned this is now in two steps. The first step is going premium. So we're really going to go to market with a four-seater cabin and maximize the luxury of the cabin. Um, so it's really going down the business aviation, general aviation route. And hence, Players like Netflix with fractional ownership come into play as well. So that's the kind of the thinking there, and some some great um, helicopter operators as well. Then, as we as we go forward beyond that, then we'll grow um, and we'll, 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 the affordability I think will come down as well as we as we as we scale up. You know, the infrastructure will grow. We anticipate then operating cost as well as as the product matures out will grow. The cost will reduce, and with that, then it's primed to go to the shuttle. So that's where the six-seater then kicks in. And that's more you're kind of really wanting to make that accessible to everyone. You really want that to be the affordable thing that, that is not going to cost the earth. It's not just you've got to be well-heeled, as it were, to be able to afford this. You want everybody to be able to, to, 
to, to, to fly. And with that, then, of course, here's the, you know, that's the whole point about the, the maximizing the, the distance that you can travel and the number of people that you can take in that trip with you. So um, we really see that as a, as a good stepped approach and it, it's, it's proving very successful so far. Is the interior module, and I'm asking this, so you mentioned four-seater to six-seater, a lot of the airlines, global airlines, make a lot of their money on cargo. Hypothetically, could your interior be fitted for cargo delivery use cases? Absolutely, absolutely. That's uh, <clears throat> that's kind of one of the one of the strings in the bow. We have quite a, again quite a large cabin, um, so cargo deliveries is, is really ideal, particularly for remote areas. You know, um, we can look at certain operations that are in in play today, where yeah, okay, you can take a truck there or, or you can fly a, a large aircraft. But then when you get to other areas, how do you distribute beyond that? Particularly in today's demanding world, people want things like same day or, or same day or, or early the next morning you know and and this yeah. is where this is where we can really play a piece there as well since your aircrafts are all electric how do you balance the weight of the aircraft with the need for distance and then on the back side of that this altitude because i've been in the andes you get very high some parts of china you go into tibet you you get very high how do you balance all of that Weight is a very much, it's a critical item. Um, any aircraft, uh, no matter what, what its style, weight is always an issue. A traditional aircraft, you know, fixed wing, fixed wing and tube, as it, as it scuttles off, as it accelerates down through the, the runway, um, clearly you get that lift. So you, you don't have to, I wouldn't say you don't have to worry about it, but it's not as critical um, as a vertical takeoff where whatever weight of that aircraft is, you've got to do this vertical heave. So weight for us is 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 is, is prime. We spend a lot of time and effort really honing out any excess. Every design feature that we have has been carefully thought about. Um, as I was saying before, simplicity has been key because we've tried to make sure that we're not carrying redundant features. If you if you look at again, if you look at a, um, a traditional aircraft where you have the you know, typically two engines tucked under the wing of an aircraft, you have a, the, the pod, so you know the duct that's wrapped around the the engine. That's actually residual mass that's not doing a lot for you. In our design, our flaps, which you know where the engines are housed within at the, the trailing edge of, of the canard and wings, they actually also form part of the lifting surface. So they're doing dual purpose. They're giving you the duct that you need to contain the noise and give the aerodynamic performance from the from the fan, um, but they also contribute to the lift of the aircraft. So you know the canards, the wing, the, the fuselage itself, they all contribute to the lift. So you know there's no effort spared on on, on taking out that that extra bit of weight make sure we've maximized the use of the space that we have available and then the cabin itself yeah we, we've um we're working with deal and uh, one of our big big suppliers to to finesse that also the seats themselves as a, as a company a little lesser known company perhaps called explicit they are fantastic and they've got certified seats that are coming in really lightweight and again when we get into airlines and, and even you know on the private side as well in the business aviation you can optimize the layout to meet the requirements and you can offer those on the luxury side you know with the business aircraft or on the standard side you can make it really fit for purpose and, and durable so um we, we it's certainly modular and um, it's, it's quite a good thing that uh, allows us to to uh, minimize the weight maximize the effect and get the range that, that we're looking for weight plays a big issue very public years ago united took the seat backs out the tvs to save to save weight and they did it and there was a consumer uproar and then guess what happened the screens came back as prices went up the screens came out they went back but what we that's that aside battery technology is getting better it's improving there's been some breakthroughs in labs uh, toyota's had some breakthroughs where it's getting lighter more denser 
as battery technology advances, and let's say it meets um, a certification or a safety certification or a level where you're comfortable CTO, your safety team is comfortable, will you look to upgrade the battery technology to perhaps expand the range of your aircraft? Indeed, it's a it's a key part. It's a key tenant of our of our strategy. Our batteries. We have, we're we're blessed actually with a, with a company called Ironblocks. We provide our chemistry for today's batteries, and there's a there's a another company called Custom Cells who then take that chemistry and produce the actual pouch batteries for us. Now that technology is developing constantly, and as we bring the aircraft to market, we will continue in the background to develop the technology and bring it to new places. And the idea, we've actually designed the aircraft in a way, um, our battery packs are actually, um, if you look at the aircraft on the side of the fuselage, the, the, the battery packs are actually tucked away in here and they're readily accessible. So as we, as we develop the technology, um, we can then go and upgrade the aircraft in service and, and take them to a higher standard. So again, that's one of our motives for the regional side. Today, I was saying, you know, 100, 105 miles, 175 kilometers. That will extend through time. You know, for the, so the, the aircraft's out there, it's a given shape and form, but we can constantly upgrade the range and fly it further. So that's the thing. You can also um, decide to use the energy in a different way. You can fly faster. You know, these are, these are the, the trades that, that you may want to have. But that's, that's a real key tenant. And, you know, we're working with a number of battery companies, actually, to look at the next generations and, and where we're thinking about going and, and keeping on the forefront of, of technology. That's really smart. I went to a teardown of a 747 once. Uh, United hosted me for a, a teardown. That was really interesting, all the, the stuff that has to go through and all, all, all the wires. You don't have all the wires that they have a 747, but you have the batteries. Let's say you take out battery A and you put in, let's call it new battery B. Do you have to go through uh, another certification level or how do you ensure that aircraft is ready for, for flight? If it's a if you're bringing in a new standard, so you're putting in a new technology, there's a very there's a very I would say a well trodden path about how you do certification and modification upgrades. Um, so if you want to change something, there's a way you can do that, and, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of controlled path. No matter what you bring, if it's something new, you're going to have to prove in advance the technology is capable. Um, it gives you the reliability and, and keeps the same level of safety that you've already certified to. So it's a modification program. And, you know, these are the kind of things that you would do for upgrades. And absolutely, I can imagine that the teardown you experienced, um, there's a lot goes into some of these aircraft. And again, we the beauty we've got, relatively simple aircraft. So uh, I think we're, we're pretty well placed for the future, I think. From a, a noise perspective, one of your, your testing facilities, you fly over a beautiful vineyard. And if I want to walk through this beautiful vineyard and, and taste the grapes, and I got to go get, taste the wine because you're a vineyard after all, well, how noisy will that be? Like, oh no, there's this aircraft above me again. What does that look like for the person on on the ground using your facility where there's that beautiful vineyard? Do they is it loud like a helicopter? What does that look like? Well, there are ducted technology. Noise has been again really key for us. It's been really central to what we do, and we've driven that pretty hard from day one. We've set ourselves a target of being in the, in the 60, high 60 dBs for certification. So um, that's going to be, if you're standing, you know, about, was that 100 meters, 300 feet away, you're going to hear something that's comparable um, to conversation at a distance. You know, so it will be, it will be, it will be pretty much uh, very acceptable. As the aircraft gets airborne and takes and goes higher, it's going to go beyond. Um, you're going to go down to sort of probably about the 40 odd dB level. It's going to be effectively inaudible. The aircraft itself, whilst we're going to certify to clear to 10,000 feet, you're probably going to fly at about 5,000 feet. 
when you get to those kind of levels in cruise, you're not going to hear this aircraft. It's, it's going to be very quiet going forward. So as you're enjoying that glass of wine, you're going to be in a good place. Well, I'm going to be happy. Okay, so I'm having my wine. I'm sitting there. To me, you're building trust with me and enjoying my glass of wine. Overall, is that one of the keys for Lilium to, to build trust with the public and regulators is the low noise because you get a local politician. I don't want this in my community because it's loud. But no, look at our system. It's very, it has low noise. Does that help to, to build that trust? Sure, absolutely. And I think the whole part about noise, accessibility, clearly we want to be close to, have close proximity to uh, densely populated areas. We know it's, historically, it's been one of the problems that helicopters have had. Um, you know, and there's also been some some issues where one one sort of famous case in the 1970s with uh, the Pan Am building uh, where the uh, Sikorsky had a, a tragic event um, on the roof. You know, so the, the public perception for some of these things in these areas can be damaging. You know, the, the vision of having flying above the grid, you know, the city grid can be challenging. So you've got to make sure that you're building that trust going forward. And I say there is an accessibility, acceptability and a willingness. That was the, the YASA presentation from survey from 2021 tells us there's an, there's an appetite there for that. So we've got to bring the product to the people and we've got to demonstrate, you know, noise is a great example. We've got to demonstrate it and give people comfort. And also then by able to say, you know, this aircraft, this aircraft that you're looking at, smaller than, a, than a, an Airbus or a Boeing, but equally safe. You know, so and by the way, it's a lot safer than a helicopter. So you, you start to build that confidence, and as we grow and we see more people flying this, I think the demand will come. You know, we're very, we're very confident about that. The demand's going to come. In your opinion, what does the future with eVTOLs look like? So I think there'll be a, a slow ramp up. I think, we, as we said, we're going with the the early adopters. We see that on people around the the business aviation side of it. Um, as the aircraft get going then that gives you the opportunity to build out the infrastructure. I think initially um, there'll be probably constraints to certain areas where it'll be within existing air traffic channels. You know, there'll be, they'll be given, go in this direction, go in that direction. As things expand, then I think the envelope will expand. You'll be able to fly further. You'll have more opportunity to go to different kind of, I wouldn't say random places, but more um, remote places. Um, so you can see that growing. Also, I think, certainly from a Lillian perspective, as I say, I think as, as demand and, and people see this happening, demand will grow, it will naturally accelerate. It's, it's human nature. And certainly history has shown us that, whether it's a, you know, a Tesla or an iPhone, um, even jet aviation, initially probably not affordable to many people, but as people got more and more into it, as the economics of scale kicked in, becomes more accessible. So you can see more of this happening. And again, from our perspective as the technology develops in the background we'll be flying further you know we get to a point where absolutely flying from um, where we're based here in munich in germany up to berlin in one flight you know that that's going to be hopefully standard in one day and you know, that's really what we're after and again our technology and our packaging we really want to open this up so we're flying bigger aircraft with more people um, so we see that coming and we see that coming you know not so far away at all there's a lot of fun things coming and when you have customers, and here in Florida we have Disney World, and, and in California they have Disneyland, and in Florida we have this bus called Mickey's Magical Express, and it would take you from the Orlando airport to Disney World, not fit for air, uh, what you're building with Lillian, but I could see an opportunity from the west side of LA to Disneyland, you call it Mickey's Magical Air Express, and now you've got a whole service that Disney's operating through some charter pilot service. Kind of interesting. 
the other driving service and I, I spoke to a Disney executive yesterday and I said, how are you doing? The, how are you guys doing? He goes, our number one goal is to keep them in the parks because that's how we make money. They eat in the parks. They buy merchandise. The kid wants to see Mickey. They go buy more stuff. So what you're building could be Mickey's potential Air Express. It's going to be a lot of fun to see how this technology is rolled out and I'm really looking forward to it. Alistair, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? I think first and foremost, just to take the point that, you know, Lillium, you know, we're not a ride-sharing air taxi. We're really focused on regional air mobility. Electrical aviation and kind of practice, eVTOL is a, is a real practical contributor that will enable lives, uh, enrich lives, and do great things, I think, for the um, uh, for decarbonisation of aviation. So a lot to be played for. And, and the real important part is it's real. You know, this is, this is it's happening. It is today. It is actually not only Lilium. We've been at it for for a little while now. There's other companies doing the well. We have aircraft flying. We're in certification programs. We have a great supply chain. There's a lot of people already engaged in this. So this is a real thing that's going on. So literally, this is something that's not tomorrow. You know, it's not a, a, a two decades away. Yeah, not tomorrow. It's actually now. It's, it's actually happening. It's real. EV tolls are real. They're here today. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is Lilium. Alistair, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we explore the latest in autonomous freight technology with Enride's Tim Dawkins. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.